Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the March edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is FIDE master John Jacobs, who has been a visible presence in the U.S. chess world for the better part of 50 years. One of the country's highest-rated junior players circa 1970, he is a former U.S. Junior Open winner in 1972 and a member of a first-place or tied-for-first team in early National High School Championship and a Pan-American Intercollegiate. After many years away from chess, John returned to competition in 2002 and began writing about his experiences for Chess Life in 2005. John contributed 12 Chess Life articles between 2005 and 2020, most of which won awards in the annual Chess Journalists of America contest. Along the way, he spearheaded an anti-cheating movement that led to a 2005 petition signed by a select group of pro and amateur players, writers, and teachers that asked the U.S. chess leadership to modify over-the-board tournament rules to address potential cheating. That effort also led to an anti-cheating conference held at the Marshall Chess Club at the end of 2006 that was widely covered by media around the world. Currently, John is involved in two chess-related projects, a future book and video series showcasing beautifully played upset games by club-level players and building interest in international tourism around the sites of historic chess events, such as early world championship matches, America's first chess clubs, and the grave sites of important players like Steinitz and Lasker. Welcome to One Move at a Time, John Jacobs. Hello, Dan, and thank you for including me in this podcast series. Yeah, no, with, with this chess resume, I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk to you and, and really give an idea to our listeners about just all the different ways someone can be involved in a chess life. But, you know, we, we talked a lot about your chess life, but you had an out, a career outside of chess. Why don't you talk about that? Um, I'm a professional finance writer. Um, I uh, had been a, a business journalist starting in around 1980. Um, after college, I went to graduate school and got a, a master's degree in journalism from University of California at Berkeley. Uh, ended up covering the shipping industry for uh, about 10 years and uh, switched over to uh, being a financial journalist in the mid-1990s and, and then uh, pursued a financial analyst certification. It's known as the CFA Charter um, and then held a series of jobs in, in financial institutions, one of which I continue to work at today. While you were in journalism, did it, did it always 
seem to you that eventually you would get into chess journalism or did that just more or less happen as uh, an end of the career saying, you know what, let me, let me merge my two talents. I guess not. In fact, I don't, I've never thought of myself as a chess journalist. And I, I remember when I was in journalism school at Berkeley, um, I um, did go out for the daily Cal, which was a student newspaper. Uh, and I had a, an interesting challenge there because one of their most famous alumni, and he was very recent, he had only you know, gotten his degree only two or three years earlier. Uh, his name was John Jacobs. He spelled it with an H. Um, as you may know, and many of your, reader, your audience may know, there's also a chess John Jacobs who was also two or three years older than me and was slightly rated slightly higher than me when I was first coming up. So this is a uh, this is an issue I've encountered from time to time. Um, but at any rate, um, uh, I did try to cover a chess tournament for the Daily Cow. And it, it, there was an up-and-coming young player who was probably about 14 or 15 named Yasser Sirwan. Um, and the big shot there was, was Grandmaster Walter Brown. And uh, I think it was in that tournament where they, they played what became a very famous game where Brown brilliantly destroyed the young Sirwan. Uh, a queen sacrifice drove the king all over the board. But the thing is, I it was not my métier to write about chess for a general public audience. Um, um, I guess maybe that should make me somewhat sympathetic to all the mistakes that uh, uh, mainstream journalists make when when writing about chess, and I, I imagine. I imagine you could teach me lessons in that aspect of it, Dan, because I know how much you uh, observe those kind of and, and, and spotlight those kind of mistakes that, that mainstream journalists uh, make when portraying chess. But the, the bottom line was when it came to chess, it had been part of my uh, way of thinking and, and upbringing for so long that um, uh, I never really had any interest in, in, in kind of presenting it to uh, uh, the readership of a, of a standard, you know, newspaper or magazine. I mean, I do have some interest in, in showing, um, lay people who, who have some basic understanding of chess, but, but no exposure to organized chess, the beauty of chess. But when writing about the results of a chess tournament, you know, say in Berkeley for the readers of the Berkeley student newspaper, you're really not going to be able to write at all about the beauty or really much anything else of what happens on the board, you know? So, um, that's not, uh, my chess writing for chess life. I mean, none of it is really journalism, um, except for the, the cheating cover story. Um, uh, but pretty much every other story, uh, I did for chess life was, was about what happens on the board. So let's get into the cheating discussion because, uh, you know, you were an early advocate of anti-cheating efforts. Uh, you know, it's a topic that's become of even greater concern during this COVID online only event era where you know, we have fair play guidelines and algorithms. Um, you're on our competition integrity committee at U.S. Chess, which is chaired by Brian Yang. Talk about why you became interested so early and what what work you did? Why why did you feel like you needed to be the standard bearer here? Uh, excellent question, Dan. Uh, let me just preface that I will go into my history as an anti cheating activist and what drew me into it. Let me just preface it by saying I'm not 
a significant figure in that movement today. I, I stepped back many years ago and uh, I am not technically knowledgeable about about chess apps, about uh, anti-cheating algorithms. I am friends with Kenneth Regan, and I have tremendous respect for the work that he's done. And I would, you know, to the extent that I can give a meaningful endorsement as a person with, with basically no coding knowledge, um, I would say I, I firmly endorse his efforts, but uh, I, I do not have uh, expertise myself. Uh, about the the primary means of detecting and fighting cheating in the online play context, and that's pretty much the context that's meaningful today. Um, maybe, maybe that'll change in not too long when we go back to face to face chess. But all right, I was drawn into becoming an anti cheating activist at a very specific from a very specific experience in two thousand three. I was playing a tiny one day tournament in New Jersey. And I was paired against a guy named Alexander Merchu. It's safe to name him, and it's not libelous, because the USCF Ethics Committee did find him, for lack of a better word, guilty of cheating, and they banned him. Uh, two years after I played him, he became infamous for fleeing out the loading dock during a tournament, the HB Global in Minneapolis. Uh, that name may be familiar to the, some of your older audience. That was the tournament that Maurice Ashley organized that had a half a million dollar prize fund. It was bigger than any world open up until that point. And it was the precursor for the three millionaire opens that Ashley organized a decade later. Uh, of course, it was the richest open tournament in U.S. history as of that time. In that tournament in 2005, this guy Merchuk was playing in the under 2000 section, I think. And they caught an accomplice of his in the hotel, analyzing Merchuk's game on a computer. And Merchuk must have had an earpiece or something, so he, he was basically getting computer moves from an accomplice. When Merchuk was confronted during his game, it was the final round or maybe the next to last round, and he was leading the, leading the section, of course, he fled the playing hall and the hotel and probably the city by abruptly exiting the room through a back door. And he was forfeited from the tournament. All his games may have been a null. Now, when I had played him two years earlier in New Jersey, I, I had the powerful sense that he was cheating because he got up on every move, either to talk with a kid who came over to him or to make or receive calls on his cell phone. At that point, this was already, this was just like a year or so before talking on the phone during your games was made illegal. It was still permitted then. Uh, he was also in his game with me. I had the sense he was playing above his strength and he'd beaten a master in the previous round. So I figured he must be cheating. It turned out that he was cheating, only not against me. Because after that tournament ended, the TD told me that this guy was teaching his young son to cheat. So that's what he must have been doing in our game with the kid who kept coming over during our game. Because there was a kids tournament going on in the same building that day. And the father and the son were engaging together in the heartwarming activity of perfecting each other's cheating techniques. So that's what, we got, that's what got me started in, in, in trying to uh, combat cheating. Um, I uh, organized a petition that was submitted to USCF headquarters in 2005. And it was signed by GM Andy Soltis. I am Danny Kopeck myself and three other active amateur tournament players. 
Then a year or so after that, I organized a working conference at the Marshall Chess Club that explored the technical and legal and policy aspects of what could be done to detect and deter cheating. Uh, this conference was open to the public. It was widely advertised. I think it was in December 2006. Um, it was covered in the Russian news media and, and various other news media. Chessbase had a number of articles about it, Chessbase News. And that one had some famous speakers. Uh, Grandmaster Strapunsky, who was the reigning U.S. champion at the time, and Goitschberg, and Steve Emmett. Um, I, I, now I'm trying to, I should credit, uh, that's right, Doug Belitzi, who was the president of the Marshall at the time, gave me the idea to organize the conference. And Steve Emmett gave me the idea to, to approach Goitzberg and, and signal that Goitzberg would be willing to speak at it, which he did. Um, and also Kopech was a speaker there. Uh, and a chess-playing attorney named Nelson Farber, uh, which I mentioned because this is going to be relevant to something more, more current. Uh, Nelson, during that conference, gave a lot of detail about the kind of due process that would be appropriate both for a, a, a adjudicating a cheating complaint during a tournament itself, where there was someone was suspected of cheating, and also later for proceedings like an ethics committee hearing, if, if the suspect... We, the due process mattered because people, chess authorities, were very concerned that cheating suspects, especially if they were punished, could mount a counterattack in the courts. And their pieces would be, you know, real lawyers and real judges. So you, you wanted to be sure, you know, you couldn't be successfully sued. That conference became the main subject of the Chess Life cover story that I wrote for the March 2007 issue, which was called Blockading Chess Cheaters. Now, that turned out to be the pinnacle and the end game for me as an anti-cheating activist, because around that time, Goitschberg CCA started taking steps to keep electronic devices out of players' hands during play. And that was really the first time anybody important in the amateur chess world who was running open tournaments had done anything concrete that recognized cheaters could be a serious threat. So at that point, I felt my mission was accomplished, and I stepped back. Um, as I said, nowadays, I'm not a significant figure in the anti-cheating movement, and I haven't been for a while. Um, I think my earlier anti-cheating work was important and effective in its time, but it's largely irrelevant for today, where the focus is almost exclusively on detecting online cheating. And that seems to be to automatically emphasize algorithmic move analysis and other technical measures like time spent per move. So I don't really have concrete advice about that except to endorse Dr. Regan's work. But I do have one strong opinion that, that I'll relay. Um, I think in some ways the pendulum has swung too far the other way in relation to cheating online. Because I still think about Nelson Farber's remarks about the need to give suspects a proper due process. And I see the major chess servers, which are now, that's where all the important former face-to-face -face events have migrated to. And these servers have no due process whatsoever. They don't even claim to. The policy they always put out is, we are convinced our algorithms have only minuscule probability of being wrong. And we've had reputable statisticians, including statisticians sent to us by the chess federations, 
have reviewed our methods behind closed doors and they agree with us. So there's no reason for us to ever give a suspect due process. And, if, and we won't. And if anybody can't stomach that our decision is final and we don't need to explain it or show our evidence or refute the counter evidence that a suspect might bring forward in his defense, then they can just go playing chess in their basement with their little sister or their neighbor, but they can forget about playing rated chess or any kind of organized chess. Um, and I just, that just doesn't cut it with a lot of people. And, and so I, I think, you know, the federations have kind of abdicated enforcing their own fair play rules, which include basic fairness. I mean, how can you have fair play and, and be patently unfair to the people yeah, we're certainly in a in brave new world territory. Um, you know, as as, as everything's being kind of um, developed on the fly. I, I'm curious, going back to uh, your 2006 conference at the Marshall and the fact that it was covered uh, so widely, was the U.S. leading the way in uh, dealing with chess cheating, and did we directly influence any other federations that you know of? I have no idea. I read a lot of what was being written in the chess press around the world at the time. Um, and my recollection is that probably everybody was reading what happened everywhere else, but I never developed much sense of how, pardon me, of how the one might have been influencing the other. And I should add too that I, while I eagerly read everything that I saw about top-level chess competition, you know, cheating complaints involving grandmasters. Of course, there was the Toilet Gate uh, scandal in the in the um, was it 2006? I guess it was 2000 the World Championship match between Topolov and Kramnik. Um, I use the word scandal exclusively in reference to the dirty tricks that Topolov and his manager used to steal an unearned point from Kramnik in the match, there was no evidence whatsoever that Kramnik had any kind of uh, artificial help. And of course, Dr. Regan's analysis vindicated that. And it, it was just another um, instance of, of, sort of psychological tricks uh, that had already, you know, been practiced in a lot of previous world championships, like during the, you know, during the Cold War and the Korchnoi-Karpov stuff and the, even the Spassky-Fischer stuff. Uh, so, uh, Bottom line is I followed those kinds of news, but I very deliberately shied away from making requests or recommendations or, or, or uh, issuing opinions about cheating in the grandmaster context, um, both because I lack the chess expertise, but more importantly, because politically I could see that that was a wedge issue for my, my audience because, um, in a lot of the chess world, there was a, a tendency to blame cheating in amateur events exclusively on the mere existence of sizable money prizes. And, and that was basically, a, I saw that as a wedge issue, something that would split my constituency, my audience. And so I didn't, I didn't want to you know, tread into it by, by trying to be uh, an authority and an activist for and anti-cheating for both professional contexts and amateur contexts. I stuck to the amateur context. So the 
the availability of money prizes is, is something that's always really confused me about about the chess world. And since you've grown up uh, in in the era of these big weekend Swiss events and big prizes, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts because I, my other I, I've talked a lot about being a tennis player on on this show, and all of us who are active tennis players and league players, we're playing just for the fun of it. There and the competition. There is no money at all in amateur tennis, uh, but there's a lot of money in amateur chess. Do you think that chess tournaments could survive if people were just simply playing for bragging rights and ratings? Uh, off the cuff, I'd say no. But really, you got to ask people like Goitschberg. And all right, he's biased because he basically created that tournament culture. But I would basically say you've got to ask or tournament organizers. And maybe sponsors. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that, that's the other answer is, is sponsorship. Um, we finally have that to a significant extent in the U.S. Um, this, this is not really a subject that I was expecting to talk about. But in terms of funding for chess, um, right now we have this huge influx created by A, the pandemic, B, Netflix. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, oh, and C, streaming. That was even before Netflix. You you had that great, well, not it's not you anymore. I, I guess John Hartman had that great cover story on the streamers, which is a whole third wave, you know, in, in addition to the pandemic and the, and the, the Queen's Gambit. Um, I don't think anybody really knows whether that those booms will prove any more durable than the Fisher boom. I mean, I'm certainly not taking a skeptical point of view they, they very well might in fact is you know on balance they, there probably is reason to think they will be more more durable but there's that so that's a huge source of money new money into chess that wasn't there even maybe a year or two years ago uh and then of course the other thing is, is a stable source of money from rex sinkerfield and and now you have john d rockefeller um in terms of sinkerfield i mean obviously his contributions and the institutions that he founded, and he seems to have done so in the sort of organized way that one would always think that rich, successful people would always do. In other words, give it an institutional basis, but, you know, not just like a, a single individual with, with his ego giving when he feels like it. I mean, Sinkerfield has moved beyond that and has really created institutions that will, that should outlive him. But on the other hand, he, he, he is part of the tradition that, that chess in the U.S. has always, whenever it did get sponsorship, it was always from sugar daddies, which, which made it inherently unstable. And so, again, I think Sinkerfield has done that in a way that may prove more stable and created institutions that will live beyond him. And, you know, let's hope so. And I'll add for our listeners, uh, for more information on Rick Sinkfield, uh, on the current episode of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO, there is a follow-up to an interview they did with him a few years ago, uh, and they talk about additional information that's happened since, especially the fact that uh, they are in the midst of a huge expansion on the west end of St. Louis, of the St. Louis Chess Club. Um, so, so, John... Your career start. Your chess career started at the age of thirteen back in nineteen sixty eight. 
I'm talk about your scholastic chess experiences. Then it's it's a very it was a very different scholastic chess world uh, in the '60s than it is now. Um, since the 2000s have have hit us, and I'm I'm also curious, did your scholastic chess career uh, and experiences influence your your life your later life in any particular way? Okay, I'll be glad to to go into that. Um, First of all, it wasn't called scholastic chess then. There was no such thing as scholastic chess in the modern sense. There were there were junior tournaments, and there were tournaments limited to um, people in high school or people in junior high school uh, or people in elementary school. Um, but these tournaments were entirely within the chess world, not within the school world. Um, I imagine some schools had chess ladders and had after-school game rooms where that, that was how I actually got started. I mean, I played ping pong and then, and then also chess, um, you know, in, in the after-school, you know, uh, in a gym, I think, in, in junior high. But my father taught me the moves when I was 10. And I actually have him, I have a memory of watching him play with a friend of his in the backyard of our, our summer home in Long Beach, Long Island. And I had I think I'm, this might've been several years before he taught me to play. I, I have a vague sense. I was, in fact, I must've been much younger because when I was 10 or nine, even we sold that, that house We left Long Beach in like 63, I think. Um, so I, I guess that, um, he might've felt that, uh, I was too young to learn, you know, I mean, people used to think, well, you can't teach chess to a kid at all hurt their brain unless they're already, you know, 10 or 12 or something like that. Um, so anyway, by the time I was 11 or 12, I, I had a habit at home of playing against my father every evening, one or more long, slow games each night after dinner on, on the small glass and wrought iron dining table in the tiny kitchen in our Brooklyn apartment. And it, thinking back on it now, it seems like years of doing that, but it might well have been only a year or less. I got, I got good enough to beat the kids in my junior high school. And I remember playing long games against my seventh grade teacher, Miss Tierney, uh, late in the school year, one year when I guess the curriculum was finished and, and she had nothing to do with the kids. So she had them play structured games for the final week of the school year. But while I was beating everybody I met or everybody else I met, there was one person I could never get anywhere with and, and, and competitively in chess. And it was my best friend, Lenny Gross, who lived around the corner because Lenny was a tournament player. Now, he played only one tournament a year, I think. It was the New York Scholastic Championships during Christmas vacation. He was rated only about 1,200. But he knew to avoid moving his queen in the opening, which I still did not know. So he always clobbered. Until I was in eighth grade, I went to a library and finally picked up and read my first chess books. And I still remember which ones they were. It was Chess Strategy and Tactics by Reinfeld and Chernev and The Art of the Checkmate by Reynaud and Kahn. Six months later, I was mopping up the floor with Lenny, just like he used to mop up the floor with me. During that period, Lenny brought me to my first tournament. Um, it was one of those scholastic events, and I still remember the top two seeds. They were Sal Matera and Eugene Meyer. I wasn't playing in the tournament yet. I just watched. But I must have entered a tournament soon after that, and from there I went up fast. My first rating was just under 1,200. 
But by the time it was published that that in chess life, I was already at least 1600 strength and my results proved it. And then I hit expert in under two years from my first rated game and then master a year later. Um, one of the early highlights that really cemented um, chess as a big part of my life was a road trip that my Stuyvesant High School teammates and I took to a high school tournament in Pennsylvania. I think it was in Harrisburg. I had just started 10th grade, so I had just come into Stuyvesant from junior high. <clears throat> I think my rating at that point was 1941, which in those days made me one of the top seeds in the tournament, if not the top seed. The thing that made the trip especially memorable was that Bill Goichberg gave our team a lift to the tournament from New York to Harrisburg. Um, he and his assistant TD, who was a guy named David Kaplan, drove all the way with the three of us in the car. I don't remember if he was driving a pickup truck or a station wagon or what. And on the highway at night, the car had some kind of breakdown. We had to stop on the side of the road and wait for the highway patrol to come and get us out of there. Uh, since I was just a teenager, I don't remember what arrangements Bill made to get the car running again. But I do remember I was sitting with him in an office while we waited to get it resolved. Maybe it was a state highway patrol or state police station at roadside. And while we were sitting there, Bill took out a set and showed me his first tournament game. He had come from a chess family. His father was a USCF honcho in his time. So that when Bill played in his first tournament, he must have been much stronger than I was when I played in mine. Um, I remember some of his game. It was a knight or Sicilian where White played early on both Bishop G5 and Bishop C4. And that was actually a fashion in the 50s and the early 60s. Players with black would play knight BD7 early instead of queen C7. Um, so that they weren't stopping White from playing bishop c4. Um, other than that, all I remember is that the game was a wild tactical melee, and I was quite impressed with Bill's play. So I finished tied for first in that tournament, and my team was the first-place team. And my final round game against Kent Goulding, who, by the way, went on to become a leading authority on the game of backhand, ended up as either my first or my second game to get published in the New York Times in what was then Al Horowitz's column. Um, I was told later that that game also made it into one of Horowitz's books in a chapter illustrating what he called a stock sacrifice. And, and now that I think about it, I actually saw that chapter, that page, but I don't know what book it was in, and I've never been able to find it. Um, I once did a thorough internet search uh, and read descriptions of all of Horowitz's books that I could find, and I found nothing that sounded likely to include a game like that. Uh, maybe someone listening to this might know or somehow figure out which book it was and tell me. So that's how my first career, how my chess career took off. Um, in the following years, I won or tied for first in two greater New York high school championships, uh, U.S. Junior Open. Uh, I finished in a second-place tie individually behind Christensen in a national high school championship. I played in the U.S. Junior Invitational and the other things you mentioned. After college, my chess activity tailed off, and I was mostly out of organized chess throughout the 1980s and 90s, so I missed the entire Kasparov era. Uh, I came back to competition in 2002, and what spurred me to come back was that I I played in a big free outdoor open tournament in Central Park that Chess in the Schools puts on every September or October in partnership with City Hall. 
that tournament isn't rated, but I was so, I found the experience so engrossing that I decided to dip my feet in the water and play a rated tournament again. It was a, a week, a weekday evening rapid event at the Marshall. Uh, and from there, I, I kept going and I, I never really looked back. Um, as far as the uh, influences of chess on my other life, um, I'm not sure you or the audience want to hear this, but um, my reluctant conclusion is that the, the net impact was negative, um, mostly by precluding other goals that I could have pursued with all the time and energy that I poured into chess, um, both during my intellectually formative years, like high school and college, maybe even in also in the years since coming back in, in 2002, at which point I was in my late forties. But I, I don't think that's something we need to delve into here. <laughs> okay. I always enjoy talking chess books on this show. And you, you mentioned a couple of books that, uh, kind of jumpstarted your scholastic career. Uh, what would are there any books now? Because it wouldn't be surprising to me if we have some new listeners, thanks to Queen's Gambit, who may be new to chess. Are there any books that you would particularly recommend to a, a, a beginner? I don't think I'm a useful person to comment on that. I'm, I'm, um, I'm not all that interested in beginners, and uh, I've never taught chess. I've, I've never had more than than minor passing interest in 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 teaching chess to actually that's not quite true i did once come up with a project to try to teach chess to seniors in in in, in senior centers but that went nowhere so i i i i would defer to anybody else for advice about books that are good for you okay uh and you have your own um, long simmering book project uh that's taken other forms as well called the fish that roared you know what? Let me just sit back and you just talk about this. Ah, uh, great. Yeah, um, I think long simmering is the best way to uh, to put it because um, I this is something I have mixed emotions about too. Not not the book itself. I'm, I'm I still see it as essential to my personal legacy and my chess legacy. I've, I've always dreamed about being between covers. Um, and, and that that it's like uh, having a a statue made of yourself in, in stone or, or, or maybe in, in, in gold plated plastic, uh, uh, and, and, and wheeled out at a convention. Um, it has a permanence in other words that my chess life articles do not have. Um, and although I'm a professional writer, I have actually never written a book. Um, so, uh, that that's, uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, the mixed feelings are that I, I pull back from it. Um, for chess-related reasons that I'll go into. Um, so, you know, what, what, what is the fish that roared? What got me into it? Well, it's, it's an upsets collection. It's not about me. It's not my upsets. The, the ultimate book, which will probably have between 50 and 100 games, will include two or three games of mine, at most, at most two or three games of mine, but they're not upsets I pulled off. They're games where I was the upset victim. Um, the book is not about me. The website is not about me. It's, it's about great upsets um, by club players. Um, like most people, I would think, I, I was always fascinated by the David kills Goliath kind of story. Uh, underdog who triumphs against the odds. It's probably a, a common trope in sports and in movies like Rocky. 
something that's paired with human interest themes, like if the protagonist was poor or was somebody who'd faced discrimination or overcame a disability or something like that. Um, and another thing that makes that trope especially well-suited for chess is that you can analyze the moves and, and that lets you filter to only uh, showcase games where the hero or, or uh, the upsetter truly did something heroic. They, they played brilliantly. So that's what I set out to do with this book, to entertain people. It's not The Fish That Roared is not an instructional book. Um, almost all of my published chess writing, uh, all the Chess Life articles, except the, the anti-cheating one and, and, and maybe now the, uh, the one about the grave sites, were purely instructional articles. I mean, I tried to make them as entertaining as I could with the, with the annotations and the game selections, but you know, they they were meant to be instructional. Uh, this book is different. It's it's the selling point will be uh, will be beauty and entertainment value, and I'm selecting games. Uh, entertainment value is by far the biggest criterion. There's also a rating criterion. I'm, I'm using games that. Uh, where the winner was a club player, uh, which I define as someone rated below 2,000 at the time of the game, uh, and there was at least a 400-point rating difference. Um, uh, and the, the, the game quality is, is I, I'm re requiring that they be played well, not just relative to the, the hero's low rating, but played beautifully or brilliantly in an absolute sense, regardless of rating. Because I want every game in the book to be so interesting in itself on the chessboard alone that no one who buys it will feel ripped off, even if they didn't know the player's ratings. So I got that idea. I, I, I kind of started working on it. Um, actually, I had the idea earlier. Um, I had the idea sometime in the 2000s, but uh, I had a, a life scare, a medical scare um, around the end of 2014, I think it was, and that made me suddenly highly conscious of my chess legacy because you know most of my games aren't even digitized. Uh, very few of them are published in ChessGames.com. Um, of the games of mine that are published in databases, uh, a significant percentage of them aren't mine, but they're the other John Jacobs and. Another significant percentage of games that I did play are credited to him. Um, I think Chess Base might have corrected the one with my draw with Ryshevsky, um, which was credited to him, which was which is especially funny because he played in that tournament and he also faced Ryshevsky in that tournament. So we both played, we each played and drew Ryshevsky in that tournament. Um, but of course, neither of them did so twice. Um, uh, but Anyway, so I, I started, because of the life scare, I said, gee, you know, I've had this, this book idea in mind for a long time. I hadn't collected games for it, but I had had two or three games that I remembered from the past, from reading about in Chess Life, that I thought could be, become the nucleus of a book, not a book about just those games, but to find similar games and publish a book-length collection of them. And one that I remember that was especially memorable was... Uh, Davis Fedorowicz. Davis was a retired dentist, I believe, who was rated 1600. The game was played around one of the U.S. Open. I think it was 1980. And um, the game and the chess life coverage made such an impression on me that you know I remembered it decades later um, because there was a the chess life had a sidebar 
like an entire column with its own headline in the coverage of the U.S. Open that was just devoted to that game. And the, and the headline was cool. So the title of that was called Firebug Confesses, which was a great pun because, you know, fire on board, right? Sheer off, fire. But there, there had been a fire in the hotel and the tournament had to be interrupted because of fire in the hotel. So Davis, in writing up his game, you know, kind of wrote jokingly that he had started the fire in the hotel. So anyway, that was a, was a, a beautifully played game. Um, there was um, uh, Foreman Echo Shauna, which was uh, an Alvin Counter Gambit where an A player brilliantly demolished the 2300. Uh, uh, and and um, there's one other that, that skips my mind at the moment, but I already had a few games in mind that, 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 far and away fit the criteria I was thinking of. And, and so in, after 2014, I, I kind of formalized it. And I sent proposals to various people asking for support and also asking for games. And of course, you were, uh, I'm just remembering this just now, you very generously uh, offered me a free classified ad in, in, in Chess Life asking for games. And uh, right away, games started coming in. And, and at this moment, I don't remember how many responses I got, but I, I got quite a few. There were you know, several dozen, some, something like 50, maybe more. Uh, people responded to that classified, and the very first one that came in was um, was was publication worthy, and might have been the best one that came in from that uh, from, from that notice. Uh, so for the next maybe two years, I was putting a lot of my free time into that. I wasn't playing much tournament chess. I had uh, when my career had had. Uh, had resumed um, in, in around 2009. I, I gradually pulled away. I'd been very active from, from 2002 when I first came back to competition through 2008 or 2009. And then the ensuing years, I gradually became less and less active in tournaments. And, uh, you know, in 2014, 2015, 2016, I played in a tournament here and there, but very few. And I was spending, I mean, basically my chess free time was going into screening games for the book. <laughs> um, the uh, submissions from the chess life solicitation and from other, you know, contacts I made to all chess friends. That was a first plank, but there were several other planks. There were various internet searches of other sources that, that published games or news of upsets. So I, I have a, a broad number of streams of raw material for, for games to examine. And, um, basically I'm not through all of that, but, but, um, Around 2015, I started playing in a local chess league, uh, and my results were so much better than expected that I got, I guess now I say seduced, lured into kind of changing my chess trajectory. Um, I, I, in three seasons, I had a league performance rating of well above 2,400 in all three seasons. My best season, I was the most valuable player in the league. I had 11 out of 13. Most of my opponents were FMs. Um, had, had I beaten the grandmaster I faced in the final round, I would have had a 2,500-plus performance rating. And I said to myself, <coughs> on the one hand, I figured I, re I don't really think I'm that good. I mean, a lot of the games were tactically very interesting, and I was very pleased with my play. But I had the sense that my opponents, most of them FMs, were playing below their strength. Um, this league was, you know, a lot of people who played in it were like me. They had, had basically 
withdrawn from tournament chess and, and they were just doing it, you know, partly socially to, and to keep chess in their life, to, to keep the experience every week. And, and so uh, when I went back into competition and driven by that, I took care to not get my expectations up. But my idea was if I can play this well and this successfully in the league, I really owe it to myself to make a real concerted effort with the time I have left to try to fulfill the chess potential I had as a youngster. I mean, I was number one rated 15 year old in the United States in 1970. I, I, you know, I played in the U S junior invitational and then I didn't pursue chess, you know, as a career. And, and of course I never got a title. I, I don't even believe I ever made a norm, although I came close a couple of times. So I said to myself, um, you know, you just had this life scare, you know, and, um, you know, still young enough that I felt I was on the top of my game mentally, you know, if not in chess, then in, in work. So I, I felt I still had all my marbles, I felt. And so I, I owed it to myself to really try to become an I am. Um, I knew it was hard, even if I was as, as, as good as the league suggested, because I'd seen Dennis Montecruzos try and fail. And at his peak, he was much stronger than I was. He was a top junior in the 1980s. And I recall seeing somewhere that his peak over the board rating was 2475. My, my peak over the board rating, which I attained only um, during your years, really, uh, 2009, was 2338. So, you know, if he couldn't make it, you know, I probably couldn't. And, and so I tried to keep my expectations low and I more than succeeded in fulfilling my low expectations to the downside. So it was sort of a, it ended up being sort of a wild goose chase that took me away from the fish that roared. But, um, I'm not imminently going away from the tournament. So I'm, I'm not imminently going back to pouring all my free time into the, into the book. Um, but, uh, I hope to do so somewhere in the foreseeable future. So if people have an upset that they want to submit to you, uh, how can they contact you and get you the game? Uh, I guess I, you could put my email address on the, uh, should I just say it here? Or? Yeah, go, go ahead and say it. And I'll also put it in the show notes. It's jacobs310 at optonline. That's optonline.net. And people that are also interested in this topic, you also have a face. I believe it's a private Facebook group that you maintain called the Fish. No, it's actually a public Facebook group, which means that anybody can see all the posts and comments, and anybody can view the member list. Now, of course, in order to post or comment yourself, you have to be a member, and I approve the members, which I routinely do. If there's any chess whatsoever in, in an applicant's profile, I will I will automatically approve. Um, if the Facebook group is called the fish that roared, we could put the link on the, on the web page that has the link to this podcast. Um, people can easily find it by just keyword searching in Facebook for the fish that roared. And I think it's a brilliant title. Um, can I assume it comes from a, a, a title that involves a rodent? <laughs> yeah, I was going to address that. Yes. There's, um, there's a series of, 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 Books. I think there might have been only one film, but I found to my surprise recently 
and I have to confess, I still haven't read it, nor have I even seen the movie. That's a big confession. But I've, I've heard about the movie for decades. There's a, the movie's called The Mouse That Roared. It's a sort of a political satire. It's, it's about a fictional country in Europe called the Duke of Grand Fenwick that is having major economic and political difficulties. And uh, in order to gain resources, they, they figure they need to attract the world's attention, which they do by declaring war against the United States of America. So there's one last big area I want to talk to you about, and it's a relatively new area of interest for yours and is responsible for your most recent Chest Life article, uh, along with your co-author, uh, I am Yuri Lopshin. Uh, it's chess tourism. What what led to it, and and what do you hope to do with this? The first part is very simple. Yuri led to it. Um, I was at the Marshall Chess Club one evening. Uh, it must have been in 2018, early 2019, and Yuri button hooked me. Um, I never asked him whether this had something to do with the with the death of his of his previous author collaborator um but he 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 came up to me and i know him pretty well i mean we, we played at least five or six tournament games with each other and he's a honcho at chess in the schools so <clears throat> i've seen him at the, the chess in the schools parks tournament i've seen him elsewhere he lives a block from me so i run into him on the subway occasionally and he he basically asked me if if i would um you know join with him, assist him in, in a writing project. Um, and he had gone to visit the graves of Steinitz and Lasker and had, had come away um, surprised how difficult it was to find one's way to the individual gravesite. It's very easy to find what cemeteries they're buried in, and it's very easy to find cemeteries themselves. But the Steinitz one, for instance, um, is Evergreen Cemetery. It's a, just a gigantic cemetery. I, I forget what the number is right now of, of, of graves there, but it's in the hundreds of thousands. Um, so um, I guess this may be the norm for, for cemeteries in general. They, they don't um, publish interactive maps or even, even physical maps that have directions to individual grave sites or lo even locations of individual grave sites. You have to, you know, ask the, the cemetery authorities somehow. And I, I think cemeteries generally are, are, are not staffed or barely staffed. Um, I mean, they may have an office, but, uh, you know, it's not, uh, you know, for the amount of grounds, the number of staff is fairly small, and what staff there is are probably more like groundskeepers than you know than administrators. So, you know, it's it's uh, he accurately realized early on that providing a uh, detailed guide to how to find your way to Steinitz and Lasker's graves would be a very useful service for <clears throat> chess players, and not only New York area chess players, but anybody that you know, had an interest in, in chess history and that might visit New York from, from anywhere in the world. So the Chess Life article was kind of a first step, you know, toward a larger project of, of basically starting a venture to promote chess tourism. Um, we we're already on the verge of getting a similar article, um, you know, focused on Steinitz and Lasker Graves published in um, uh, a chess magazine in the 
United Kingdom. And um, we'll also look, look to, to, after that, we'll look for similar, you know, for other countries. Um, but the larger goal is to, to do uh, walking tours and, and even international tours for visitors to not just grave sites, but other sites that are important in the history of chess. Firstly, in the New York area, maybe eventually other areas like New Orleans or Boston. Um, you know, Yuri had, had looked up some other places like the first location of the Marshall Club, the first location in Manhattan Club. There were several world championship matches he played in New York over the years. And, you know, of course, there were a few recent ones um, like the, the, uh, the 2016 um, Carlson Karyakin match. But, there was a uh, Kasparov matches were played in New York, but uh, but you know also some of the very first world championship matches in in the uh, you know in, in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. So uh, you know you one could put together uh, you know almost a multi day uh, chess tour of New York. Uh, that given what an international game chess is, it, it would probably have as much appeal for international visitors as American visitors. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so I, I look forward to your increased efforts there. So, you know, we're approaching the end of the show here. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you about, you know, over a half a century in chess and, and all the varied ways that you have made chess part of your life. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, parting thoughts. Um, I can't think of any broad wisdom to, to, you know, help people either promote chess or, or, uh, I guess the one thing that comes to mind is that for me, the thing that sustains my interest in chess and, and that I've always felt personally, and, and I've seen that I'm, I'm, I'm quirky. I'm, I'm probably not the norm, but the thing that I would assume would be the strongest draw to bring members of the public to to come to love chess it's not the competitive or sports aspect it's it's the art and beauty aspect and uh i mean that's somewhat um um, uh, paradoxical because in order to appreciate that one already has to get pretty good you know maybe 1200 at a very bare minimum and 1500 to be meaningful 2000 to really appreciate it so you're basically talking about years and years of effort before somebody can even appreciate it as a as an observer you know so i mean maybe that's why relatively little effort among uh chess promoters to the public has ever focused on on that aspect of it on on enlightening people and i think enlightening is a very good word there because it has uh you know, almost religious, almost religious roots um, to, to have the kind of, you know, epiphanies that one can have when contemplating a brilliant chess combination. You know, that that's wonderful. And so, John, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of One Move at a Time. And as a chess book lover, I'm going to urge you to uh, take take the fish that roared off the simmer uh, and and make it a hot project and try and finish it up. I think that there will be a ready-made audience for you and it would be a very popular book. Thank you very much, Dan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Hey, bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.7seasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at US Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.